0: All right, thank you so much, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, this morning is where we're going to be. I'm excited because we're continuing our series of messages on biblical leadership. Uh, Last time we were together, we finished up 1 Peter chapter 5, and we used that as a kind of a launching pad to jump into this study on leadership. And what we learn is that God has gifted the church with an office of leadership called pastor or elder. You can use those terms interchangeably. In fact, even the term you're going to see in our text this morning is overseer, but that's one office, pastor or elder. It's a spiritual leader, a spiritual shepherd. God gives the church that we learned last time exists to protect the church, to feed the church, and to serve as an example to the church. The passage we looked at last time talked about the functions of that biblical leader. The passage we're going to look at this morning is going to talk about the qualifications of this leader. What does a biblical leader, this pastor or elder in the church, what are they supposed to be in order to fulfill the functions we discussed last time? Now here's why this is so important for you and for me. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're part of the church, The reason this is important is because part of God's gift of grace to you as a follower of Jesus is faithful leaders who will come into your life to encourage, shepherd, and even at points sustain you in the journey that's called faith. Part of God's plan for you is not for you to be all alone by yourself trying to figure out faith and the journey God's called you to by yourself on your own the church is God's plan to encourage and guide you. Pastors or elders, that office is a key component of what the church should be doing to encourage and shepherd you. And so here's what I want you to know. I try to sum up each week kind of the message in one sentence. I want to go ahead and give it to you so you can have it loaded in your brain. The key component, the key qualification. Pastors and elders must have to be this gift of grace to you is they must have a vibrant faith that makes a tangible impact in their lives. Their faith as leaders should be real enough that it makes a demonstrable change and the way they live. In fact, I want you to really pay attention for that idea as we read through these first seven verses, okay? With well, that loaded in your brain, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, would you please stand to your feet with me as we honor the reading of God's word? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words. The saying is trustworthy, This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word that he's given us. Would you pray with me, church? Father, as we jump into your word this morning, we pray that you would remove distractions, and we pray that you would speak to every heart here. God, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word, and Lord, that as we hear from you today, we would not just be hearers of your word. God, would you also make us doers as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen you can be seated. This idea that pastors or elders are to have a vibrant faith that makes a demonstrable impact is really given in the first qualification here, which in my mind is a summary qualification. Pastors or elders are described as above reproach. That is to say that their lives are not perfect, but they are exemplary. The faith that they have in Jesus makes a real difference in how they live their lives. This morning, I want to show you four different kinds of relationships in which this kind of faith impacts pastors or elders, and by extension, should be impacting all Christians as well. Number one, I believe this tangible faith, this tangible impact should be seen in a pastor or elder's relationship to the Holy Spirit. Look in your Bibles at verse 2. It says that they're to be sober-minded, self-controlled, skip down to verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. The idea here that Paul's emphasizing is that pastors and elders are not to be people that are controlled by their passions or their sinful desires. Rather, they're to be self-controlled people under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I'm framing it that way is because I think what Paul's saying here about being self-controlled, sober-minded, is he's saying they're not easily manipulated by how they feel about things. He says they're not a drunkard, they're not a lover of money, they're not easily persuaded by a strong desire for a substance or for material gain, rather they're under the control of the Spirit of God. If you're taking notes, you can write down Galatians chapter 5, because Paul talks about this idea there as well. He says there's a war going on within every follower of Jesus between the flesh and the Spirit. The flesh wants to lead us to death and destruction. It wants to lead us to our own gratification of our own desires. While the Spirit's leading us to Christ-likeness, to submitting ourselves to Jesus And so really what Paul's saying about pastors and elders is there to be people who put the Holy Spirit in the driver's seat of their lives. The way that pastors and elders should have a visible kind of extension of their faith in their lives on a day-to-day basis is that the Spirit of God is in control of them. Not 100% of the time, not perfectly, but in an exemplary way, they exhibit a control from the Holy Spirit. When Shelly and I were dating and moving into engaged life, one of the areas that I saw quickly could potentially ruin our marriage was driving together. (laughs) Can I get an amen out there? Uh, Men and women have very different views about driving. In fact, I mentioned this in the first service And people in the second service stopped me and told me, before we came in here, I had somebody stop me in the hallway and tell me that their life group started by talking about all of their worst experiences driving together as husbands and wives. One of the things that we figured out early on in our relationship is that there were certain situations that we shouldn't put each other in if we were going to avoid having a fight. Okay? Okay. Is that reasonable wisdom, right? You know what situations to avoid. So what we realized when we would go to see my parents in Memphis, Memphis can be particularly confusing with interstate system, right? Trying to get around. And so we would get in there, and if Shelly happened to be the one driving, I'm barking stuff at her, and she's not happy about it, and we're trying to get around. And so what we decided to do was we would pull over in West Memphis, Arkansas. Does anybody know where that is? Some of y'all know where West Memphis, Arkansas is. We would get off Interstate 40, We'd find a gas station, we would switch places, and I would be the one to drive in Memphis. And it was an historic victory for men everywhere. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, my wife's sitting right here. I asked her permission to share this illustration because at the bottom line, she said, that's your hometown. You're from there. You know how to get around. You drive there. She was, in some sense, men saying, right, honey, you're probably the better driver when it comes to Memphis. That's not the case all the time, I assure you. But in my hometown, it was true. What I believe this passage of Scripture is saying is that you and I put the Holy Spirit in the driver's seat of our lives when we believe that what Jesus offers us is better than what sin offers us. The reason... We let the Holy Spirit control us, drive. We don't give in to sin and rather die to ourselves and submit to what Christ calls us to. That could be guys not going places on the internet we know we shouldn't go. That could be not wanting, not keeping ourselves from having the last word in a fight or argument, especially if you're driving in the car. What keeps us from giving in, not giving into sin and rather submitting to the Spirit and being obedient? It's because I believe that what Jesus has for me is better than what my flesh offers me. Let me just press into this just a little bit more because I know this can be challenging because it's like in the moment, how do I consistently let the Holy Spirit lead me rather than my flesh? Here's the key I found in my life personally. The key to consistently believing that Jesus is better than my sin is growing in my gratitude of grace. The key for me personally that's helped me tremendously figure out how to consistently believe that Christ and what he offers me in obedience and dying to myself is better than sin is growing in my thankfulness for what Jesus has done for me. Because let's just be honest, sin is fun. I know pastors aren't supposed to say that, but it's true. Sin in the moment is a lot of fun. And I think we've done people a disservice by saying, well, don't taste, don't touch, don't look at that. That's no fun at all. You don't want any part of that. No, actually, it is fun. The problem is it's fun in the moment. It gives me instant gratification, but in the end, it destroys me. It's a form of pleasure, but it's a form of pleasure that kills my soul. What Jesus offers me is not just right It's better than that because obedience actually leads me to freedom. Because when I obey, I'm syncing up with God's purpose for me. Real freedom is not found in getting to do what you want to do. Real freedom is found in getting to do what you were made to do. Don't forget that. You were made to live for the praise and glory of God. And when I die to myself... And don't click on that place that I know I shouldn't go on my phone or the internet and instead obey Christ. What I'm doing is I'm living a life of obedience that connects me to freedom and joy. Now here's the reason this is important for us as a church. Church family, what we're looking for is we pray for God to raise up more men to, be the, to fill the role of pastor and elder. Is We're praying for men who are not winning popularity contests. We're not looking for guys that are the coolest people to hang out with. We're looking for people who have a sense in which they're surrendered to the work of the Spirit in their lives. And While this is important for a church, and while it's important for pastors and elders, please don't misunderstand. This idea is also important for each of us individually if you know Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'll ask the same question to you that we've been kind of working through here. Who's in control of your life? Who's in the driver's seat this morning? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it you believing and growing in your thankfulness for grace that leads you to believe that Jesus is better, or is it your flesh? Now, the reason I'm pressing this like I am is because I want you to know if you don't know Christ, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there aren't two drivers in your life, okay? If you don't know Jesus, there's one driver, and that's you, Before any of us come to Christ, our flesh is in control. It's in the driver's seat. It's what I feel. It's what I want. It's what I want to do with my life. And the way that you become a Christian is turning from that, repenting, turning away from you being in control and sin being what you want. It's turning in faith to Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what we would hold up to you is to recognize that right now your desires are are in control, and contrary to our culture, that won't bring you happiness. Your desires will destroy you. And I know that's counterintuitive than what our culture is saying at every level. Our culture is saying at every level, if you follow your heart, then you'll be happy. It's a lie. It's not true. If you follow your heart, if you follow what you want, what you feel, what you desire, it will destroy you. You have to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're going to find freedom for your soul. Number two. second way elders' faith make a tangible impact on their lives is their relationship to others. Relationship to others. Look back at your Bibles. Uh, verse 4 says, excuse me, verse 3. He's not a drunker. We talked about that a moment ago. But notice these next two qualities. He's not violent, but gentle. And he's not quarrelsome. Verse 7, skip down to verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. The Bible also says in verse 2 that he's respectable. There's a sense in which pastor elders are to be people that are not sources of conflict and strife and drama and gossip. They instead are stopgaps for those realities. They're the ones that shut down drama, conflict, gossip disagreements in the body. Now, please understand, this doesn't mean that pastors and elders just walk around just trying to get along with everybody. They're willing to confront, but the confrontation that pastors and elders have is from a gentle spirit that's seeking peace and reconciliation. I talk to a lot of people that have disagreement or problem, and it's not about peace or reconciliation. It's about them being right. It's about them expressing their mind Pastors and elders from a biblical perspective are people of peace because they've received peace from God and they're people of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God. We've moved from being rebels and strangers and aliens. We've moved to being God's children now. And because we've received that kind of reconciliation in relationships that pastors and elders have and by extension Christians as a whole, we're to be people that are trying to reconcile one another but also trying to point people to the reconciliation they can find in Jesus Christ. Peace and reconciliation. When you put that together, here's what I think Paul's saying about pastors and elders. Pastors and elders, their faith is tangible because they are relationally refreshing. Relationally refreshing because they're people of the truth, because at the end of the day, truth is refreshing. I'm reading a book right now called The Great Game. It's a book about the struggle for empire in Central Asia. I love history. Any history buffs out there, anybody like history, you guys would love this book. Great game, lots of personal pronouns, lots of information. But it's basically about um, the turn of the 19th century, uh, moving into the 20th century, as Tsarist Russia was competing with British-held India for kind of parts of that part of the world. And what got sandwiched between Russia and British-controlled India were countries like Iran, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan. And the book just records the back and forth that went between Russia and England over these areas. One of the challenges that the book records as these two empires went back and forth is that for a long time they didn't know anything about the area. They didn't have accurate maps of what was actually there in places like Afghanistan. So these early British pioneers, early Russian spies, they had to go in and survey the area. It was very dangerous work because if you didn't know how much desert you were kind of going through, you might run out of water. And consistently, that's what happened to some of these people. Many of them died of dehydration, of of exhaustion, different things. But one of the men that actually survived, he only survived by just a little bit, a couple hours more, he would have died, but he got to water, he got to safety. And he recorded in his memoirs why dying of dehydration is so painful. And he said this, he said, it's so painful because with every single breath, With every single lick of your tongue, with every single gulp that you take, you experience excruciating pain because your body was meant to operate with water. You need it to survive. And when I read that, I thought, that is such a perfect picture of the spiritual landscape as well. The world we live in is a hostile, cold, lifeless desert. And people are going to and fro from this life, trying to find places of life, trying to find places of significance, but they can't find it. And what Christians are supposed to be, and especially uh, elders, as we hold them to a higher standard, are there to be people who are offering cold cups of spiritual water to dry and thirsty souls. And so when Paul talks about them not being violent but gentle, not being quarrelsome, being respectable, they're to have this kind of relationship where they're known for being people of reconciliation and peace both inside the church. But also notice verse 7 said, even outside the body, they're to have a reputation for being people that are bringing peace and reconciliation in the relationships they find themselves. So here's the point for us, church family. What we're looking for with pastors and elders, and by extension their families, is we're looking for people who are not constantly the source of conflict and strife. We're looking for people who are constantly the ones that are bringing a stop to that. And by extension, I believe that what Paul's talking about is not just true for pastors and elders. It's also true for generally Christ, general Christians, everybody out there. So let me just ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you a person of peace and reconciliation? Would people around you that know you, coworkers, friends, family members, would people describe you as someone who's peaceable and focused on reconciliation? Let me tell you why this is so important, because oftentimes the reason we're not peaceful externally, we're not focused on reconciliation in our relationships, is because we don't sense the peace of God within our hearts. If anything, Christians should be the people of peace and reconciliation in this world because we have received that. We've received that in the most important relationship we have, our relationship with our creator. And because we have that vertically, that should be manifesting itself in our lives, in the horizontal relationships we have with other people as we operate as people of peace and reconciliation. Number three, pastors and elders are also exemplary. Their faith makes a tangible impact in their relationship with the home. Paul talks about the home in two kind of directions. He talks about marriage. Husbands and wives, and he talks about parenting, the relationship between parents and children. In verse 2, he says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, full disclosure, this is one of the most controversial and hotly debated passages in the New Testament. Okay? So I'm stepping into a somewhat challenging position, but I want to be clear with you about what I believe this passage teaches. Um, I do think that at the baseline, what this passage is saying is that pastors and elders shouldn't be polygamists. Okay? It's absolutely saying that pastors should be the husband of one woman at one time. Polygamy was an issue then, not so much an issue today in our state, different states where it's a bigger issue, but not here in Missouri. But that is something that he's saying. The debate comes as to whether that Paul is talking about the issue of divorce. Is he saying that divorced men are suddenly unqualified for the position of pastor or elder? Here, let me tell you what I believe, and I'm going to share my heart with you, okay? I do believe the office of pastor should be reserved for men that have not been divorced. And I want to be clear with you about why I'm saying that, because I know as soon as those words come out of my mouth, some of you have been divorced. Some of you have served as pastors and you're divorced. I would quickly add that I believe every local church is autonomous, and I respect local church autonomy in making decisions about who their pastor should and shouldn't be. But for me personally... I do believe this office should be reserved for men who have not been divorced, and I'll tell you why. Every person I've talked to that's been through the pain of divorce would say they don't want anyone else to go through that as well. I've not met a person that's walked through the pain and trial of divorce that wouldn't say, I don't want anyone else to go through that. I believe the reason pastor elder is reserved for this kind of position is because god is trying to say to sweet people don't go down that road now i know some of you didn't choose that road some of you had that road chosen for you but i know none of you that have been through that would want somebody else to go through that i believe what paul's saying here is preventative medicine to others who might be considering that because let's just be honest divorce has become easy in our culture it's very easy to do that. and It's almost become the norm. The church is meant to push back against that and say, no, pastors for years have not talked about this because many of you have been through the pain of that situation for fear of hurting you. I'm not going to hold back for you. When the text brings it up, I'm going to talk about it. I want to share my heart with you. I want you to know this is not punitive. This is not some scarlet letter that means if you've been divorced, you can never do anything for the kingdom of God. That is not the case. But we do want to say to sweet people that might be considering that, don't go down that road. Stay together. Work it out. Get some help. This husband-wife relationship, pastors are meant to be exemplary in their love and care and concern for their wives. But he also says that they're to have an intimate and close relationship with their children. Look at verse 4. He says they're to manage their own households well With all dignity, keeping their children submissive. What that means is that parents are to shape and mold their children to have a respect for authority. Parents, one of the most important things you are doing with your kids is you are shaping a view of authority in them that will translate to their view of authority in other parts of their lives. Okay? So what we're doing, moms and dads, is we're trying to teach our kids that authority is actually a good thing. Submitting and following authority is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And when we teach children that submitting to authority is good, the reason that's important is it shapes the way they view God. I cannot tell you how many counseling situations I've been in where I look at somebody and they tell me, I can't think about God as father because of the horrible relationship I had with my dad. We're shaping how people view God. We're shaping how they view other authorities in their lives. One of the reasons I think people today just have a general problem with authority in our culture is because we've, the family's broken down and people are struggling to understand what good, healthy, loving authority looks like. Had hundreds of thousands of people marching on Washington, D.C. saying, you have no authority over my body. And while we love women and would do anything for the women in our church, we would say, no, you don't get to do whatever you want to with your body. You don't get to do that in any sphere of your life. You don't get to do whatever you want to with your body by walking into a bank and shooting somebody. You don't get to drive however you want. We have laws that restrict what you do with your body in every part of your life. Why are we suddenly okay with this logical inconsistency when it comes to life and abortion? I'll tell you why. It's because we have a problem with authority. The new mantra and doctrine that the world is living by is autonomy, personal autonomy, personal independence. That's what's most important. And if you infringe upon that culturally, you are anathema. And what we want to say is actually authority is a good thing. Godly, especially godly loving authority that cares for you is a good thing. Let me appeal to the children in the room for a moment. The reason you obey your moms and dads is not because they're the smartest people in the world. I didn't hear any amening. That was good. That was tempting, probably, for some of you. That was good. That's not why you obey your moms and dads. The reason you obey them is because they're God's plan to protect you. Even when they don't make the best decisions, unless they're asking you to sin, obey them and you will experience protection that you never dreamed of. My parents are sitting right here in the front, third row here, here for my little girl's birthday. I had a birthday party for her yesterday. I, you can ask these people, after they were not perfect parents. <laughs> this is just appropriate. I got it right here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it. They weren't. But you know what they were? They tried to follow the Lord. And even in decisions that, you know, you look back on, maybe we could have done that differently. I think God protected me and my brother because we obeyed them. I don't say that to glory in our family. I just say that to say sometimes we don't hear those good stories Of authority working well, and I want you to hear that. Biblical authority in the home is meant to protect you and help you. So here's the point, okay? Let me just try to land the plane on this. Here's the point I think Paul's making. Pastors and elders are meant to be men who are consistent publicly in who they are, and they are consistent privately in who they are. They're consistent at church as they walk around and sing songs and lift their hands and talk about how great God is. And then they're also consistent in who they are in their faith when no one's looking but their wife and their kids. This is why if you look back at your Bibles in verse 5, he gives a warning. I don't know if you noticed that when we read through the first time. He says, for someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Let me tell you what that means. He's saying, if a pastor elder can't lead people at home, he's not consistent in who he is at home, how is he going to lead publicly with all these other people? In other words, what he's saying is, leading at home is one of the hardest places to lead. You know why? Because this blonde here, Shelly, she knows my weaknesses. She knows my faults. And if I can get her to follow me and my children to follow me, who see me at my worst sometimes, I'll be able to lead in the home. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a veteran youth minister, minister of decades working with families and teenagers. And I just asked him one time, we were kind of hanging out, and I said, hey, tell me, what have you seen be the most important difference between families who raise kids in the church and they stay in the faith and stay? walking with the Lord, and families who raise kids in the church who don't walk with the Lord. I know there's not one size fits all, but what have you seen in your experience with teenagers and families that's really helped move kids to be faithful once they finish high school, move into college and adulthood? And without missing a beat, he looked at me and said, Spencer, the families who were consistent in their public life and in their private life shaped those kids in a way that made a difference. Because their faith was not just a Sunday morning thing. It was not just a Wednesday night thing. It was who they were. It's who they are. Here's what I want you to remember, parents. We need to teach our children, but never forget that the faith we're passing on to them is at times just as much caught as it is taught. And them seeing you live out your faith and being consistent and being obedient, even when it costs you is one of the ways they make connections about what faith is supposed to look like. One of the reasons we are so passionate about this is we have invested a good bit of resources in our Faith at Home Resource Center. As soon as you walk out the door, as soon as you turn around, you'll see this resource center. One of the books I would highly commend to you parents is a book called Family Worship by Donald Whitney. This is an excellent book. If some of you are saying, yeah, I want to do that... I want to be about making Christ the center of my home. I want to be consistent. I want to start integrating my faith into my home. How do I do that? Here's a really great resource you can grab on the way out. David and Sheila will be in the back. They'd love to talk to you. We are committed to not just telling you these things, but coming alongside and helping you live that out. But back to pastors and elders. Let me just finish this point up by saying this. Pastors and elders, in light of this We're looking and praying for God to raise up more leaders like this who are consistently in their faith, living it out publicly and privately. Their children are not perfect. Their children are not without flaw or fault. But they're people who are teaching their children to be submissive and especially respectful of authority publicly and privately. Number four, and finally, relationship to the word. I believe the fourth way this passage of Scripture talks about elders having a tangible, visible faith is in their relationship to the Word. Look at your Bibles in verse 2 again. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and then here's a key phrase, able to teach. Now, the reason that's key is because that phrase is different than every other phrase in a series of verses. Every other phrase in a series of verses deals with character qualities, who they are, respectable, hospitable. These words describe their character. This is the only skill explicitly mentioned in this passage of Scripture. And here's what Paul is saying. Elders and pastors need to be people who can take the word... And bring it to bear on people's lives. They've got to be able to understand the word well enough that they can help people live it on a daily basis. Let me quickly qualify what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that every pastor and elder in our church has to do what I do every week. It doesn't mean that they have to have the gift of public speaking and be able to speak to a group of people that it's more just a few. What it does mean is they have to have an involvement in the ministry of the Word. In other words, they're involved not just in public preaching and teaching, but also in things like counseling, exhortation, training, evangelism. There's all different types of ministry of the Word. And pastors and elders, while they don't have to be the greatest public speakers, have to be people that are engaged in the ministry of the Word. Let me tell you why this is so important, okay? Here's why this is key. It's because both in verses 6 and verse 7, Paul talks about the reality of spiritual warfare. I believe there's a connection between the qualification of being able to teach and the fact that in verses 6 and 7, he says that the devil will try to ensnare biblical leaders. Look at verses 6 and 7 and watch how he does this. He says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Twice in two verses, he mentions the devil. And here's what's going on here. The enemy knows that if they can get at a pastoral leader and get him to fall, they can impact hundreds, potentially thousands of other people. Some of you have walked through the pain of watching that happen, where you've seen a pastor make a poor moral decision, and it impacts the, the way the ripples just go everywhere. One of the reasons I believe the Word and this reality of spiritual warfare are connected is because the word with prayer is the primary tool we are to use in engaging in spiritual warfare. So if you're taking notes, write down Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul lists the spiritual armor God has given us, and the only offensive weapon that he lists in the list of spiritual warfare armor that we've been given is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So here's what this means. Pastors and elders, when we set aside a man to do that, what we can assume will be reality is they will face a more intensive and aggressive form of spiritual warfare. And because of that, they have to be people who can handle the word, not just for other people, but in their own lives. So here's the point I think Paul is making about elders and pastors. Their faith is to make a tangible impact in their lives because they're to be a conduit for the Word of God. They're to be a bridge from the sustenance and life-giving source of truth that is the Bible into people's hearts. So think of an aqueduct, think of a bridge, think of some kind of electrical conduit. What's it doing? It's taking some source of power or life from one location and it's moving it to another. Pastors and elders are meant to be that conduit of life, moving the source of power, which is the Word, from the truth that's here, into people's hearts. The Word is the spiritual change agent God uses to change our hearts, to reset our affections, to move us closer in our walk with the Lord. The Word is what He uses, and so pastors and elders have to be skilled in handling that. So church... As we apply this together to our lives, what we're looking for is we're looking for men who don't just have a lot of knowledge about the word, understand every little fact and detail, but people who are able to take this and relationally pour it into people's lives. That's what we're looking for. We're praying for that kind of reality. One of the ways that God has called pastors and elders to minister the word is through the meal called the Lord's Supper. We're going to observe that this morning. The Lord's Supper is a meal God's given us to give us a visible, physical, tangible reminder of what He's done for us. He's entrusted this to the church to distribute as a way of really recommitting ourselves to Christ. If you think about the two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, baptism is kind of your wedding ceremony. It's you declaring your love for Christ. The Lord's Supper, in many ways, is your recommitment of your vows. It's your time to recommit yourself to Christ. One of the things I mentioned a moment ago was that uh, one of the ways that we set our affections toward Jesus is by growing in, our gracious, or growing in our gratitude for grace. One of the ways that you can really effectively use this time is to pray and to think about how thankful you are that God did not give you what you deserve. I want to be clear. This meal... Uh, that we're about to take is only for believers, It's only for followers of Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here, but we're gonna ask you not to take this with us. And it's not because we don't love you, it's because we do. We believe this is here for people who are remembering the fact that God saved them. If you've never been saved from your sin, you can't remember that. So instead of taking this meal with us, what we'd encourage you to do if you're not a Christian is still to participate, but to, to look and to watch what's happening So you can consider the claims of Christ. Some of you know that you need to cross the line of faith and give your life to Jesus. You haven't done that yet. Use this time as we take this meal together to be a time of remembrance. As we do this, I'd also encourage you, pray that our church would train and raise up men whose faith makes a tangible impact in their lives. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. We thank you for the kindness that you've shown us in Christ. Lord, we pray as we take this meal together, as we observe the Lord's Supper together as a remembrance of your kindness towards us, God, we pray that you would freshly affect our hearts. God, we pray that you would grow our gratitude for grace in a mighty and a powerful way. And Lord, we pray that as we take this, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that this meal will be a time for them to reflect upon and consider the claims of the gospel. We ask that you do all these things as we observe this together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.